NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Hi, this is Podsafe the UK. I'm Nish Kabar. And I'm Coco Card. And this week we're saving the UK from Chinese spies. Our guest is Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary, David Lammy. Hi, Nish. Or should we call you Scoop now? Yeah, I, I, only if it's immediately following the phrase pooper. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in Kendall, uh, working at the Westmoreland Gazette as part of a uh, television show I'm making with my friend Josh Whittacombe where we go and work at local newspapers around the country. Um, and last week I was in Wales uh, looking at a river clean-up and watching a private Charlotte Church geek, genuinely. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a local story for you, mate. Go for it. Well, as you know, I've had a cold. Oh, yeah, I'm on the Lemsips right now. Strep seals, price of strep seals, gone up to £6. Really? Yeah, crazy. And then I was like, Ugh. I hope you're ready for it talk about congestion charges <laughs> yeah so when you say you've got a local news story what you mean <laughs> is you've got a i will say excellent piece of wordplay and that's it <laughs> listen all the best stories start with a pun let's be honest that's how they all start well so. this coco whenever when i come onto this call what i'm looking for for you is guidance in how to be a professional journalist <laughs> And what you've told me is all the best stories start with a pun. So yeah, that's no, what no. I'm going to do from now on. But it is it, like the price of being sick with a cold has now reached £15. Because for me, I like to go Ulbasoil, Strepsils, Balsam Tissues, got to protect your nose, Nish. You know, it's, it's a high uh, cost affair. I'm like, unfortunately, sort of locked in uh, the kind of old fashioned cures that my father used to make when uh, <laughs> they're sort of old, weird South Indian witches brew. <laughs> That he used to make that was it's a black tea and you put pepper ginger garlic and honey in it mm. and it tastes honestly like the devil's asshole <laughs> it's disgusting but i will say it, i very rarely have a gold for more than two days well so I mean, fair, fair play to the big man listen, as i call my father the, the motherland cures have value you probably saw in the papers over the last few days that they were reporting that turmeric's really good for your health and i heard all yeah. british south asians just let out a groan <laughs> just yeah. into the air well, look, while, I, uh, while I've been uh, swanning around writing local news stories uh, and you've been suffering with the ill effects of both the cold and the economic crisis, uh, a lot has been happening in the news. We've had a manhunt for an escaped terror suspect who was, let's be honest, very attractive. <laughs> we could say it. We could say it because they've caught him again. Uh, Rishi Sunak has, uh, in fact, been back. Uh, in the mother country, the source of black tea-based remedies uh, for the G20 in India. We've uncovered an alleged spy in Westminster. There's been dangerous dogs roaming the streets, biting people. All the while, Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un have been having an evil bro hangout in Russia as we speak. We'll be getting into some of that with our next guest, Labour MP and Shadow Foreign Secretary, David Lammy. Well, Nish, we can't complain that the UK news is predictable, can we? So after spending a large part of last week's episode talking about crumbly concrete, who'd have <laughs> guessed that this week's big political topic would be whether China has spies inside Westminster? Yes, it's all got a bit uh, John le Carre this week with the revelation that a parliamentary researcher with connections to a number of leading Conservative politicians was arrested on suspicion of spying for Beijing. Now, we should make very clear that he has uh, denied all of the allegations. And we've swept the studio for bugs, so we hope <laughs> it is safe to welcome our very special guest, the Shadow Secretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Affairs, David Lammy. Hello, David. How are hey. you? Hello, it's great to be with you. My first time. Very pleased to be with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, it was interesting when Nish was like, oh, we swept the bugs for studio. Well, let me tell you, I'm ill. I've got a cold. Not this bug, <laughs> but you are in a safe distance, David. So don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I, I mean, we, we, there's so much that we should talk to you about and we will talk to you about. But obviously, given what's going on this week, 
let's just pile straight in. Mm. What has the mood been like in Westminster this week? Is everybody sort of, is there a sort of atmosphere of paranoia? Like people are looking over their shoulders and being more careful about who they talk to? Slightly there, but for the grace of God go I. Look, it's not, I think in the grown up world of Westminster, people do understand that countries spy on one another. And indeed, uh, our great country spies on other countries. However, this essentially is a story about two things, two or three things that I think are important. One is that spies are alleged to have got close um, to someone who is now in charge of the country's national security and someone who's responsible in a parliamentary sense um, for foreign affairs. That is very, very serious. It makes all parliamentarians think about and reflect on the people who advise us and do our research. It comes on the back, of course, of just a year ago, um, our intelligence services issuing alert uh, on an individual who was close to a number of parliamentarians. Um, uh, and of course, on controversies in relation to China having police stations effectively scattered across our country and what our Confucius Institute's up to. So there, there has been a very febrile atmosphere in relation to this subject and a lot of, a lot of concern. So China came up, as we would expect at PMQs. Uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak defended his government's stance on China. But when it comes to China, Mr Speaker, this government has put in place the most robust policy that has existed ever in our country's foreign policy. It is to protect our country, to protect our country for the values and the interests that we stand up for. It is to align our approach with our closest allies, including those in the G7 and the Five Eyes, and is to engage where it makes sense, either to advance our interests or, as I did at the weekend, to raise our very significant concerns. That is the right approach to China. It is one that is welcomed by each and every single one of our allies, and I'd be interested to know what he thinks that he would do differently. Well, that certainly wasn't a yes. And what he says now is totally at odds with the Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee report of July this year. That set out that the government has no clear strategy when it comes to China, has failed to support the intelligence agencies, and is leaving the UK severely handicapped in managing our future security. I mean, what what do you make of it? Do you think that the response so far has been appropriate? Well, the Intelligence Security Committee of the House of Commons is very important because they are the the parliamentarians cross-party that sit on that uh, committee do see the intelligence and do have access to the intelligence agency on a very regular basis. And they looked in detail at China and they were pretty scathing of the government's handling of China and the security threats that they thought that China um, uh, posed to our country. That was a year ago. The government were dismissive of that report when it initially came out, saying it was sort of a bit old, old behind the times, that things had improved since they'd looked at the issues. And they haven't actually responded to the committee. They say they're about to respond very shortly. So the, co- the government was slightly hoist by their own petard because of the work that that committee had been doing. Notwithstanding that, the committee had previously published some work on Russia. That was very controversial because of Russian interference in our democracy. It goes back, of course, to uh, Brexit and success in other elections. But the, but the idea that we needed to update our Official Secrets Act Um, which hasn't happened. So I think the government is on the back foot, has been under some pressure. Clearly it's divided. You know, you've got Ian Duncan Smith, a pretty hard line on how we should be approaching China. You've got us in the opposition being very clear that we think the government's been wholly inconsistent. David Cameron was talking about a golden age just a few years ago. We've got Chris Patton, a senior Tory, very upset at the government's position on Hong Kong. Um, And then you've got the sort of the, the current 
uh, Rishi Sunak position, which was different from Liz Truss' position. So the truth is the government's got a problem with consistency of approach to China. And then it's got a problem with actually not listening to what so many people are saying about the need for that consistency and about the need for us to be very robust indeed. And where do you sit on this, David? Well, my view is that there are threats to our country that clearly China poses. And we have to be pretty hard-nosed, and they would expect us to be, about uh, our democracy, about those that advise us, about um, our access to critical technology in relation to our country. Um, and, and it's extraordinary that we were just three years ago happy to for the Chinese to run nuclear sites and to be responsible for our 5G network. So we have to have a firewall between us and China on those key issues. And that does mean that we have to challenge China where necessary. But we have also got to recognise that this is a hundred billion pounds worth of trade with China, that it's a country that has 140,000 students studying in higher education in our country at this time. It represents a fifth of the global economy. Um, We have to cooperate with China on issues like climate issues like pandemic preparedness, particularly. Um, uh, And of course, we must compete with China where necessary. So it's it's inevitably can't be reduced to just one word. And some of the discussion this week has felt rather binary. Is China a threat or not? It does pose threats, but our relationship with China is much more complicated than that. And in that sense, I would agree with what the former head of MI6, Alex Younger, said about the way we should approach China as a whole. David, we're talking to you, uh, you know, in in a position where we're we're an unspecified amount of time away from a general election. I mean, nobody wants to count their chickens in the Labour Party and Labour HQ, I'm sure about this. But, you know, if the polling continues the way it is, and equally, if the Conservative Party continue to self-immolate at the rate they seem to be self-immolating, we're now on a Zoom call with the next foreign secretary. Do, do you have a sense of what uh, a prospective Labour government's position would be on its dealings with China? And is it th- what you were saying? You're going to have to try and thread a balance between managing a threat, but also acknowledging that they're one of our largest trading partners. Nish, we've said that we need a complete audit on our relations with China right across government we would begin that work on day one. And the reason that I've been clear on that is because we do want, um, across the Labour government, a consistent approach to China. And we recognise that this is an approach that has to withstand generations of politicians. So we want a complete audit uh, right across government. I think it's then clear, as I've outlined, that the three C's guide our approach to China. And I happen to say, I think that the Australian government under Albanese has done well here. The uh, US has done quite well in this area under Joe Biden. And that is that we are in competition with China and we have to be pretty clear eyed about that competition. We have got to cooperate with China um, in key areas internationally. Let's remember that we have the privileged status of being members of the Uh, Security Council of the United Nations. And then, of course, we have also got to challenge China and uh, pretty robustly on areas of human rights, but also where we think uh, China is harming our security or the security of our partners or the greater world. Uh, So that's that's how I would outline our starting position. But I want a complete audit. I also want a complete audit because whilst as a privy councillor, I am subject, I do get briefings on matters that should rightly concern the official opposition. I don't have the day-to-day intelligence that those in government have. And it's only when we've seen that complete picture that we can absolutely finalise our position, which we will do in an integrated review. On that, when were you told, there has been some disquiet expressed by MPs about the timing of when they found out about this particular incident. Uh, Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, has said the MPs who needed to be told were told at the time of the arrest, which took place quietly in March. When were you told uh, about this situation? Well, I can confirm as the 
official opposition that um, we are part of that circle of members of parliament who knew about this on a need-to-know basis. Of course, I would be breaching Privy Council rules if I went into detail about what we were told. David, you know, Westminster's known for being a bit of a gossipy place. It is quite unnerving hearing this story. Uh, You know, I I imagine it's quite easy to find leaks. I mean, how confident can you be that the Labour Party hasn't been infiltrated? I know the Times uh, have been saying that some Tory party candidates have been ruled out after advice from UK intelligence services. I mean, will intelligence services have any input into Labour candidates, for example? Well, you know, again, it's pretty alarming that the intelligence services are ringing up Conservative Party HQ and saying, look, you need to block those two candidates because we think they're spies. I mean, that's extraordinary. As far as I know, um, the Labour Party has not had a similar call. Um, uh, Having said that, um, this this should be a wake up call to all political parties. The National Security architecture makes sure that uh, we, I, certainly in my role, and people like Yvette Cooper, who represents Home Affairs, are on the latest in terms of how we should be conducting ourselves in public and and certainly smartphone use and and how we use computers and things we, 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 we are assisted with. The best way for me to describe this is to say in one of the ways in which to understand what a government is up to in a particular country is to watch, listen very carefully to the official opposition because we are watching the government the whole time. We are analysing the whole time what they are up to. And if you just watch and listen to any opposition, you'll, you'll be halfway probably there to what a government of the day is up to. So for obvious reasons, you're absolutely right that we are in a sensitive position and there but for the grace of God go I on this wider issue, which is are those who want to commit treason and espionage getting access to senior politicians of whatever party and therefore finding uh, our national security compromised? Now, I do need to caveat that whilst we are watching the government, we as the opposition do not have access to, um, uh, you know, top level, top secret documentation. We are not in the government. And for that reason, it may well be we've not been uh, targeted in the same way as we're finding out or appear to be finding out about the government of the day. David, I'm not going to lie to you. When you were describing that there, I had a little moment where I thought, if I was a spy, I'm going to get David Lammy. And then actually, as you were talking, you, I was like, no, maybe I won't get him. He doesn't like <laughs> As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen. Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. It's so great to have you on the podcast this week because it's been a really big week for foreign policy. I'm a Labour voter, been a Labour voter my whole life. I have an up and down relationship to the party. I'm not sure I've ever felt fully represented, but I have a bit of a blind spot about foreign policy at the moment. It's quite easy to do that. You know, the schools are crumbling, the NHS is on fire, the the waters are full of shit. Um, So (laughs) it's easy to sort of forget about foreign policy and its importance. And I wonder if you could just take a moment 
So for any listeners that are like me to explain why foreign policy uh, is, is crucial right now and how Labour differs from the Conservatives and why that should be something we consider at the, at the voting booth. Well, thank you for asking this question. You're asking me this question at an extraordinarily changing time for the global community. We have lived through effectively one superpower dominating the world, and that superpower is the United States of America. We're now navigating a world in which there are two superpowers, the United States of America, joined, of course, by China, with a very different outlook on the sorts of freedoms, democracy that we take for granted. We are also seeing the rising powers of India. We saw that on show last week during the G20 of countries like UAE, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. Um, These middle powers, as they're being called, being robust. So we're living in a geopolitical moment of of a tremendous amount of variety and position. We're having this conversation at a time when the UK finds itself outside of a major regional bloc outside of the European Union at a time when most countries, smaller, medium-sized countries, are scrambling for deeper partnership um, uh, in the world because trade is changing. The world is not as open as it used to be. Uh, The um, Inflation Reduction Act in the United States um, uh, has degrees of protection in it for the United States economy. Europe is moving in that direction. Not clear where the UK finds itself um, uh, uh, as a smaller power on its own in that context. I believe this is a time when we in Britain have to be absolutely clear on reconnecting ourselves to the global community. And let me just spell that out simply. The European Union is not our enemy. Uh, to have had a prime minister describe President Macron as an enemy, Liz trusted that, is extraordinary. We want to be in partnership with the European Union, notwithstanding the decision that the British people made to leave uh, the single market, particularly in the customs union. The fact that we're not even got structured dialogue with the European Union on the big issues of the day is extraordinary. And we've been clear we want to review our Uh, trading arrangement with the European Union in 2025. This is an extraordinary time in which to have cut aid back from 0.7% to 0.5%, and then what's left to be spending a lot of that money on housing refugees in our own country. So our reputation in the global South is lower than it's been for many, many years. And by the way, the position we struck on the vaccine during the pandemic, we weren't particularly perceived to be very generous in relation to that vaccine, has also damaged our reputation. At a time when the climate emergency is real and we've got a prime minister that debates whether he's going to go to COP and worse, is not going to the UN General Assembly next week, even though we're a member of the UN Security Council. So look, there are, to, to summarise this, there are two visions of Britain. There's Great Britain that looks outward and there's Little England that feels isolated and looks inward. I think the current government represents the second. And we've got to be outward looking at this time. And the British people need us to do this because all of this comes back to the economy in terms of your utility bills, energy crisis, inflation, uh, the the hunt for um, new energy sources and renewables and the minerals that will service them. All of it comes back to foreign policy and needs Britain to be out there engaged in the world once more. I'm so glad to hear you mention Brexit there because this is a real bugbear of mine. I honestly think sometimes you're watching the news and it's almost like a a silence around the word Brexit. Brexit was an unmitigated disaster. No matter how you voted, it was a disaster. I feel like there's an an amerta over it. I I don't think I'm alone in that. Well, look, I think that we had the most horrendous divorce that went on for years. In fact, we only decided what we were going to do with the children effectively a few months ago when Rishi Sunak finally struck the Windsor Framework deal. But as I say, we still aren't really uh, properly on speaking terms with the European Union. Right. You know, the economy coming out of the pandemic, I think now business, particularly small, medium-sized business, is rediscovering its voice about the nature of the economy and the sorts of trade that we're seeing that's down with our European partners, countries like Germany, France, 
trade is down significantly. So the full effects on our economy, I think, are important. In the end, my party has to take the mood of business, particularly in the population as a whole. As I've said, we've been very clear, uh, and we've, you know, perhaps that's why it's less controversial, that we do not believe that we can revisit whether we're in the single market or a customs union. The definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. But we are absolutely clear that we've got a poor deal on trade with the European Union. We warned Boris about several things. He didn't listen. We think we could have a veterinary deal. We think we should review the deal we've got. There's much that we can do. And we certainly think that we can be close to our partners in Europe. And we would get on with that business if we were um, to win the next general election. Um, David, I just wanted to ask you about, um, it, for a lot of Labour voters, uh, specifically my age, uh, I'm in my mid-30s brackets, extremely late 30s, uh, but I, a shadow <laughs> for me as somebody who's been a lifelong Labour voter is foreign policy-based because it is a, the Iraq war. And I mean, that's still, for a lot of Labour voters, that's still something that clouds, uh, you know, the legacy of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. How much will that colour your view and perception of shaping foreign policy from this country? Oh, look, I think that in the end, my job, if I become foreign secretary, um, is to navigate what's in the UK's national interests more than anything else. And that is to some extent to navigate power, uh, power of our friends, power of our foes as well. Um, any country has episodes it looks back on in its recent history, its uh, long-term past history that uh, governments today would do differently or indeed that, yes, inform its national story, but aren't the high points in its national story. I'm not sure that anyone is going to suggest that the Iraq war is a high point. Um, I, no doubt about it. Um, uh, but it was 20 years ago. Um, and the threats that the world faces today are different and complex threats. It's still the case that the Labour Party has always been an internationalist party. We are the party that has majored on international development in our history. We are the party that, um, that supported intervention in countries like Sierra Leone, where we saw uh, uh, terrible, terrible loss of life previously. Intervention in uh, former Yugoslavia, where we saw genocide being committed effectively. Um, where the party that stood shoulder to shoulder with those that fought apartheid um, in South Africa. Um, and yes, we look back on periods, you know, you could look back to the 1930s and um, those who wanted to appease Hitler. You could back, you could look back to the Suez crisis and those who had a outdated imagining of what Britain should be uh, in the modern world. And these are lower moments in our national story. But do you regret, do you regret voting for the war? Oh, I, I, look, I think I've been in Parliament for barely two years when the Iraq war came about. And like a lot of people, um, you know, I, did, I didn't have access to the intelligence. I had access to what the government of the day was saying about weapons of mass destruction. Of course, I look back and wish I'd voted in a different way. But, um, I, I, you know, in terms of the time, I, I also have, by the way, one of the largest Kurdish populations in my own constituency. And they didn't have very nice things to say about Saddam Hussein because he gassed uh, many of their relatives. So so I, I'm comfortable with the decision I made on the facts I had at the time. But of course, if I knew now what I knew then, I'd never have voted uh, for it, no. So one of the things that I often notice is, you know, we talk about it in, in many sort of spheres of our political life, this I, this 
this potent power of fear, right? And if you put enough fear into the average citizen, you can kind of get them to agree to anything, to give up as many rights as you know possible, really. Um, I often think about like surveillance and things like that as, as an example. But like, genuinely, we have you here, Shadow Foreign Secretary. How, how in danger are we? I know today that Putin met uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, quite the meeting of minds. Um, you know, should we be worried about the selling of arms? Like, well, how far are we from a, a nuclear problem? Oh, I'm not going to talk up uh, nuclear war. Although I think that the Oppenheimer film has reminded people, haven't, haven't they, about the birth of that period and about the horrendous possibilities. But but I don't want to talk that up. I do want to say, though, that um, <sighs> Russia, China, Iran... North Korea, these are countries that have a fundamental difference of opinion on freedom. These are countries in which the questions that you've asked me so far mm. in this conversation <laughs> could not and would not happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, these are, you know, that, that's the truth of it. It, it. You guys could be thrown in jail. Um, yeah. And look at what is happening to women and those who are fighting for freedom in Iran as we speak. It's heartbreaking. Look at what's happened in Afghanistan since we withdrew. So, so yes, there are some serious risks at this moment. And there are certainly some serious risks if this group of countries gets to determine the new rules that should govern us unchallenged. Because, of course, I'm not suggesting that democracy doesn't have its its big wrinkles. I've got some problems with the current government in our own country, sure. but I am saying it's preferable. It's the best we've got. And so let's stick with it. Um, before we let you go, David, I just want to briefly ask you, um, there's obviously nations with which we have an antagonistic relationship. Uh, there are a group of governments that uh, a potential Starmer-led government would have a huge amount in common with, including, you've already mentioned, Albanese in Australia, Olaf Scholz in Germany. And obviously another one is, of course, the Biden White House. However, there remains the unflushable turd of global geopolitics in the shape of Donald Trump. You know, the, America is our, it has historically been our closest partner. H how concerned are you about a potential return of a Trump White House? And what would that mean for an incoming Labour government, given the ease with which I imagine relations would happen between a Starmer government and the Biden government? How concerned are you about the return of Donald Trump as the representative of the British government on the world stage? Also, what? yeah, because David, it'll be you, won't it? It'll be you in the White House talking to the orange man. How's <laughs> that going to be? You're going to stomach it? <laughs> Just on the first part of that, I'm looking forward potentially, and I'm going to be in Montreal, Canada this weekend with other progressives. Um, and we've got our Canadian friends, uh, of course, our Australian, German, Norwegian uh, and indeed American friends, all with progressive governments. And there could be a progressive moment, actually, when we win, if we win the election next year. I want to say that our relationship with the United States goes way beyond the individuals that occupy number 10 and the White House. Uh, our countries are deeply connected on issues of foreign affairs and security. They have been uh, we are part of that rules-based order. It's why we have a seat on the Security Council with the United States. And we agree with them on most, really on all the serious issues facing, facing the global planet at this time. Um, my own view is that Donald Trump, um, if he were to come back into the White House, actually some of the sorts of stuff he says on the stump, um, in the end, in the White House, the State Department and others, the, the, the policy direction is broadly uh, the same. But yes, of course, the language, the tone, the rhetoric, um, populism is something that none of us think uh, is a great thing for any democracy. But I do believe, having studied and worked in the United States, that America represents a great, great democracy. And we should not underestimate the checks and balances that exist in that country. Uh, notwithstanding 
um, the nature of a, what feels like a pretty divided politics. Uh, I'm not sure it's that different to the politics in some ways um, uh, over here. And you've always got to be gentle, I think, when you're talking about fellow democracies, because democracies are allowed to go in different directions. The people of America will decide who should be their next president. But in the end, they're democracies. They can turf out one person, put somebody else in, and there are massive checks and balances that the, the journalism is fine. The judiciary works in a particular way. There are checks and balances on that democracy. And that's why I say in the end, uh, Russia, China, Iran, countries like that in a very different place. David, thank you so much for your time. We have to let you go. I've got a very important question to ask, David. Uh, marks out of 10 so far for Postacoglu. I know that you're a Tottenham fan. I think he's done well. Marks out of 10. It's been a strong uh, start, I, no I, doubt. I, I, Oh, I think I think it's definitely eight out of ten. I think right, we've lovely. done much better than I expected us to without Kane. Uh, he's called Big Ange for a reason. He's doing a fantastic <laughs> job. I haven't been to a fixture yet. I hope to fix that in the next few weeks. Is that the voting bell in the background? That is the bell you can okay. hear calling me to vote right, right, live, right, let you go. live on the podcast. And if I don't get there, I will be in a lot of trouble. Okay, so I've right. literally got to dash. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I look forward to doing Thanks, it again. David. Great. Yeah, Thanks see you again soon. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. for us to announce the Pod Save the UK Hero and Villain of the Week. Now, Nish, I know who you're choosing as your hero. Um, I understand there's a bit of irony at play. Not even a little bit, Coco. Not even one vague soup sod of irony. Uh, my Hero of the Week is Lord Sugar, a man who is single-handedly helping the government with the money needed to fix the crumbling concrete in England schools. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Alan Sugar is, of course, the founder of computing company Amstrad and the presenter of the British version of The Apprentice. And according to the Sunday Times Rich List, he's worth £1.1 billion, which makes him the 165th richest person in Britain. And he has also paid a whopping £186 million in tax. Now, did he want to pay that tax? No, he did not. <laughs> a, an joint investigation by the Sunday Times and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism revealed uh, that he attempted to avoid that £168 million payment to uh, HMRC um, because the, the payment itself was on uh, a, one of the largest dividends in corporate history, which was a 390 million pound award that he was drawing from his company in the 2021-2022 tax year. And he tried to get out of it by arguing that he was not based in Britain at the time because he had spent a large chunk of that year in Australia hosting their version of The Apprentice. 
However, he didn't realize that because he's a member of the House of Lords, he automatically qualifies as a resident of the United Kingdom. So he wasn't able to claim the non-domicile status that would have got him out of that tax. And the reason that this is noteworthy, well, I mean, it's noteworthy for a number of different reasons. I mean, a £186 million tax bill is an eye-watering sum of money, given that at the moment, the cost of fixing school buildings affected by the crumbling concrete that we discussed in last week's show is estimated to be around £150 million. Also, even without crumbling concrete, £186 million is a, I think this is a technical accountancy term, a metric fuck ton of money. So it, even just that as a, uh, as a headline is noteworthy. But the reason uh, that Lord Sugar's tax affairs and his attempts to get out of paying tax do seem a tad hypocritical is that he's been very vocal uh, in the past about paying tax. In 2014, he declared, you've got to pay tax. It's as simple as that. I don't want to live a life dodging tax men. In 2020, he labelled a critic accusing him of tax avoidance as an ignorant twat. Writing on Twitter, it makes no difference where I am in the world. I'm a UK citizen and a taxpayer. So he's clearly uh, been hoisted by his own petard, uh, by his status as a member of the House of Lords. He's been forced into paying tax. And for that reason... He is my completely unironic hero of the week because sometimes uh, it's not about why you do the right thing. It's about why you're forced to do the right thing. You know, it's refreshing to have a kind of bar is on the floor hero. You know, it's just a point of difference for our in our season. Listen, is this the one, the last remaining use of the House of Lords? as a practical body to force people to pay their bare minimum tax? Can we get various other people? To, can we make Jeff Bezos the Lord of Amazon Shire or some shit and then force him to pay his tax? I, I, honestly, that's as meaningful to me as the current system by which peerages are handed out. Brackets, being friends with Boris Johnson. He gets called Lord Sugar on the show. How did he forget that he was a member of the fucking House of Lords? Anyway... Now Lord Sugar is going to be one of those names that our American listeners are like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, because it sounds like Willy Wonka. Yeah. For American listeners, his name is Alan Sugar. That's his real name. And he, because he's a member of the House of Lords, his legal title is Lord Sugar. So, <laughs> you know, basically at this point, it's a real close call for who has the worst apprentice host. Um, but Coco, tell us who uh, the PSUK villain of the week is. So uh, my Pod Save the UK Villain of the Week is, uh, surprisingly, for the first time ever, the Daily Mail. I know what you're thinking. Oh, so obvious, isn't it? But actually, the, the thing about this particular story is that it's not been that obvious. It's not been that reported. It's not been talking about really as much as I think it kind of should be. And so the story basically is this. A journalist called Dominique Samuels, you might know her. She's sort of uh, a commentator. She she sort of does the rounds on the right wing's kind of circuit. Uh, she tweeted recently in after Nottingham Carnival had finished over the August, August bank holiday. And she tweeted, I was asked to be the face of a ghost-written negative verging on racist piece by the Daily Mail paper last year about Carnival and eventually turned it down because it was a complete misrepresentation of what I witnessed while I was there. So the reason this is obviously terrifying is because it reveals that editors are giving columnists lines. They're, they're essentially, you could argue, writing the piece for them and then looking for a face to be put on, onto it. You effectively launder these opinions, which are, let's be honest, kind of racist, kind of derogatory, right? Now, Samuels herself said that uh, she used the word manufactured, which really tells you something. And she said that the, these opinions were being pumped out. It sort of speaks to a kind of industrial level of this stuff. You know, I was joking earlier about like, all good headlines start with a pun. Well, that's one way to do it in a nice way. Another way to get people to click on your head headline is to like write inflammatory, toxic shit, right? You can also do that. And this one-off tweet basically revealed gave you an insight into the manufacturing, the industry of outrage that was kind of happening from the paper. Now, we should say that we reached out to the Daily Mail and they did give us a statement. And that statement says, when the Mail commissions comment pieces, we always discuss the points to be raised with the authors and sometimes supply help with the drafting. Articles are not published without the author's cooperation and approval. On this occasion, a year ago, after an exchange of drafts, Dominique Samuels decided she did not wish to proceed and nothing was published. Now, 
Samuels was saying, oh, this is industry standard. When people sort of, you know, were outraged by this tweet and they, they went back to her and said, oh, was this ghost written? Was this ghost written about her own work? You know, she did try and kind of row back a bit and said, look, this is an industry standard practice. I'm not convinced that it is. It's nothing that I've seen before. And there were other journalists coming in here, coming into the the, the conversation saying it's not something that they've seen before. Actually, really, what was it that that meant these editors were feeding these lines to her? Is it because she was black and they wanted to take advantage of this young, hungry journalist who wanted to make a name for herself, who wanted those bylines, who didn't, you know, terribly disagree, but maybe wasn't even an authority? You know, what's going on here with the laundering and the use of black and brown faces to kind of push these uh, opinions? I think that it's really worth looking into by the uh, press and standards, uh, if, by Ipso, who kind of look over this sort of stuff. And uh, I don't care what an investigation would find. The Daily Mail, you're my villain of the week and probably for all time. Oh, absolutely. She, Dominic Samuels has admitted that at least one other piece bearing her name, which is about Meghan Markle and racism claims in the royal family, was ghostwritten. She also said it was pretty much standard uh, for like newspapers to essentially like provide color, which is uh, worrying in of itself. There's kind of two strands to be concerned about. One is to what extent are... Um, you know, basic journalistic practices being violated here. I've written some opinion and editorial columns. It ain't because I'm a journalist, <laughs> right? Like, I, 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 I think I'm a celebrity in the absolute loosest definition of the word. But like, I've written op-ed columns uh, for uh, Coco's employer, The Guardian, <laughs> and at no point did they ever say, "We will write it for you," and you just write your name on it. So that there's there's a kind of journalistic standards and practice question here. But also, there is the more serious question of: Are these papers essentially writing racist articles and then putting black and brown people's faces on them to try and give them a kind of false legitimacy. And like, and those are both incredibly serious charges. Like, I think you are so right to have raised this, Coco, because I would really like to see more discussion around this because I think it's quite a serious issue. Let's dip into our mailbag. Um, we, obviously, we, the royal we, I interviewed uh, Labour's Chris Bryant last week and it seems to have really got our listeners riled up. Um, I want to read an email here from Rhiannon. So she said, big fan of the pod. I was listening to last Thursday's episode on fixing Britain's schools and uh, broken politics and I found your interview with Chris Bryant really interesting, but I wish you'd pushed back on his response to the listener comment that Labour had abandoned trans rights and you turned on lifting kids out of poverty. To respond that there are things that they, you know, will have to leave for later felt like a brush off. And it implied that to Labour, the lives of kids in poverty and trans people were just not a priority and could wait for Labour to get around to them eventually. I love hearing you guys give politicians your honest views and disagreements. Uh, keep up the good work, Rhiannon. Thank you so much for the comment, Rhiannon. Um, and I feel like, yeah, those issues are something that we need to talk to the Labour Party more about because you know, when it comes to human life and the quality of those humans' life, those are things that they can't and shouldn't wait, you know? Um, Mark has also emailed about Coco's conversation with Chris Bryant and he takes issue with comments about Welsh water. Um, there was a conversation about nationalisation and Welsh water was brought up as an example of how to do things differently because they run as a not-for-profit. But Mark says... Welsh water are a horrendous polluter of our waterways and seas. Could you correct the record as Chris Bryant rather glossed this over? Run slightly differently, they may be, but look at their pollution record. 6,959 hours of sewage dumping in the Y in 2022, contributing to this river's ecological collapse. And nearly 600,000 hours of total dumping in England and Wales the same year, more than 25% of the total for all water companies. I live a stone's throw from the Y, so this is not abstract to me. Thank you, Marg. Um, I should also say that I was in Wales last week and Charlotte Church, the uh, voice of a generation, uh, is very active in kind of protesting around river pollution. And we were at the River Usk, which is a river that comes under the remit of Welsh water. And at one point, and this comment was substantiated by uh, an expert who was with, with us, Charlotte Church used the following phrase, I'm going to be honest, the E. coli is the least of our problems. <laughs> About the water, so it, it's a re it's a real serious problem, and uh, I'm really glad that Mark raised it. I'm also uh, obliged to read a response uh, from uh, Welsh Water, um, reacting to some of the stats he highlighted. The head of Welsh Water, Peter Perry, accepted to a certain extent 
Uh, that's the quote that Wales is not where it should be on water quality. We pointed out that 41% of rivers in Wales are of good status under the Water Framework Directive compared with 14% in England. Uh, he also defended his salary of £332,000 plus, pe- plus pension contributions and bonus payments, saying, my pay is not determined by me. I do get the fact that I'm well paid. I'm not going to try and deny that. I'm pretty much the lowest paid of my equivalents in England and Wales. Truly, oh, we play the smallest violin in the world for Peter Perry. <laughs> And we do that while smelling our rivers filled with shit. (laughs) And just to finish off, I just want to remind listeners to the podcast that they can watch us on YouTube too. Uh, It's the same show, but you get to uh, get to see us. And more crucially, you get to stare into Nisha's dreamy eyes. At Glass Spider, a user commented, dear me, Nisha's eyes are gorgeous. Sorry, what were you all saying? (laughs) It's a bit distracting, really. Only studio lighting for Nish going forward. Uh, You know, someone else chimed in. They say, Nish has sensual, mesmerizing (laughs) eyes. I'm just noticing. Not sure if he's using a filter or not, though, lol. (laughs) uh, No, this is no no filter. um, But I am... uh, Deeply embarrassed. Sensual niche. That's what she said. Is it sensual? Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, I think I ruined it when I opened my mouth. I think whatever sense of, uh, whatever sensual, mesmerizing sensation I created by my eyes is quickly dissipated by my nasal whinge of a voice. Oh, no. So you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. We love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note. Uh, you can get us on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 644572. Internationally, that's plus four four seven five one four six four four five seven two. We'd love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed on this episode, or you can nominate your own heroes and villains. Or listen, you can just send us in a question for your favourite political agony aunt and uncle. Email us at psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by David Kaplowitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Dugai. The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional production support from Ari Schwartz. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel or follow us on Twitter or TikTok or Instagram where we're at Pod Save the UK. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Spotify, Amazon or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com podcast25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 